All right. Welcome to the Data John podcast. Um, so prior to this pandemic, uh, one of the number one things facing public health was the ep uh, opioid epidemic that was going on across America. Uh, at last year's Data John, we had two different uh, speakers talk about it. Um, one of them was one of the city's epidemiologists. Um, and this February, Code for Philly uh, kicked off its first ever data science hackathon focused on identifying the number of opioid users uh, there are in the city. So uh, one of those projects was run by uh, Kelsey Keith and Sam May. And so welcome to the podcast, Kelsey and Sam. Thanks. Oh, thanks Great. for having us. Yeah, it's quite an honor to have you. This is Patrick. Um, for those people who are listening in um, at another future date and time, uh, it's April 1st. And we are, as Dan mentioned, right in the middle of um, the pandemic uh, that I don't think we'll need any description after this. Um, uh, and before this, like before we have any um, thought of, of COVID, um, opioid was the opioid crisis was uh, was on tops of everyone's tongues. That everyone was talking about this and trying to um, figure out how can we solve this. But it was much different from the crisis that we have today, but no less important. And it was lives were being lost, and um, there wasn't a headline on a newspaper that uh, wasn't being talked about. Um, so, Kelsey and Sam, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what your prior, prior uh, involvement in the community was, and um, how did you get involved in what you did uh, with this, and maybe you can give us a little bit more background. This is Kelsey. I'm a bioinformaticist, so I moved to Philly uh, last year, although I've always lived in the area, and I was looking to get more involved with um, sort of like the programming and data science community in the city. And I'd never done anything with Code for Philly uh, before, but I came to the Datathon through Our Ladies Philadelphia, um, which is a is the local chapter of a global organization for gender diversity in the R language. Um, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was fun to meet new people and to work on this pro uh, really difficult problem. And I've learned a lot over the course of it. Yeah. So did you, uh, did you guys, Kelsey, did you know Sam before the hackathon or? No, no, we okay. didn't know each other. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Sam, Sam what was your background there? And how yeah, did you so, learn about it? Um, I moved out here into, into the Philadelphia area in August of 2019. Um, so I hadn't been here for that long. Quickly learned that the opioid epidemic is particularly pronounced in the Philadelphia area. Um, for my day job, I work with a tech company that does database solutions for nonprofits and public agencies. We do a lot of stuff to enable NPOs to help collect data. Um, and I have a statistics background, and I basically wanted to do work that helped nonprofit organizations and public agencies just make more sense of their data. Uh, and just by trying to stay abreast of things that were going on in the, in the Philadelphia area, I learned about Code for Philly um, and I learned about the hackathon. Uh, and I, I mean, kudos to the organizers as well. They did a great job of uh, on like bringing on some great community partners uh, and doing a lot of data cleaning themselves in order to help enable it. Um, and so that was kind of like when I first came into uh, the hackathon, that was kind of the context that they had already kind of set the stage for us and they had a set of questions. And uh, Kelsey and I ended up gravitating towards one of the questions that they had 
expressed a lot of people in the community wanted to try and find an answer to. Um, and it seems like it was one of the most, uh, I tell you, there were, I think there were over 200 people there, if I'm not mistaken. Because um, I do remember the, uh, one of the organizers, I think it was Marika, saying, look at the value that we're bringing to this. Um, it was just an amazing um, night, if I remember the kickoff night. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it was pretty, pretty awesome to see how they were able to mobilize so much interest um, in a very, in a, a topic that is probably hits pretty close to home for a lot of people in the Philadelphia area. Um, and I think that there was a sense of pride around it that they were able to capture and sort of springboard off of. Um, so uh, the question that uh, you gravitated toward was estimating the number of uh, intravenous drug users in Philadelphia. That is no easy task uh, to do. Um, you were given some data. Uh, could you describe what that data was? How was it to work with? How much cleaning did you guys really need to do? Yeah, Kelsey, well, you want to start? Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So, like, I mean, I, we actually didn't have to do that much data cleaning um, because, again, like, everything that came from Code for Philly was really clean. Um, we also uh, found some data through the Department of Public Health, um, which ended up being incorporated into Code for Philly's hackathon anyway. Um, that was very clean. There's also an organization called Open Data Philly. Um, and we use, they aggregate a lot of uh, publicly available data about the city of Philadelphia and the surrounding region and props to them too, because it was super clean and easy to use. So there was like a little bit of, you know, wrangling the data to combine all of these different things together, but it was really easy to clean and use. The challenging part was finding it and finding um the methods to apply it. So I, I think really like the researching methods came first and then data came second. And yeah. it, we, go ahead. Uh, and the, there's like the second side of it is the data that we were provided through the hackathon from Prevention Point specifically. Prevention Point is an organization that runs a needle exchange within the city of Philadelphia. Um, and they collect data about uh, uh, an like when an individual visits a needle exchange, the number of needles that they exchange during that visit, um, and the date at which they visited. The original data set that we had was um, was uh, a set of like a total count of the number of distinct individuals who visited a needle exchange site within one month of time. Um, and we quickly realized that we weren't really going to be able to do much of anything with that um, in order to get any sort of an estimate that would be useful by anyone. And uh, props to the organizers at Code for Philly, specifically Michael Chow and Marika as well. Um, they uh, were able to provide us a more granular data set of distinct and like of individual visits by distinct individuals in a manner that did not compromise any publicly or any personally identifying information. Um, so that was like one of the big barriers in working with that data was being able to receive it in a package that 
could be provided to us without any sort of HIPAA compliance concerns um, at the time. Well, it's uh, it, it's like any data problem, right? The majority of it becomes the mess of the data that you get. And so how realistic is this? It sounded uh, like it matched um, any other projects that, uh, that typically get thrown out there. Um, but you made the best of it. And um, did you both, did you both start working on it together or how did I'm, I'm curious the mechanics behind the hackathon too how did you uh, get synced up together well sort of that first uh, first weekend of the hackathon there was a kickoff and then there was like a hack day where people sort of got organized into teams um and you know it started working on stuff so we both sort of wound up um in this larger group um and if you know, if anybody's ever gone to a hackathon before, you know, people uh, drop out for various reasons. The group size um, really dwindles. And I don't know, Sam and I just ended up uh, stepping up to more of a leading role in our group. Um, but, you That's know, great. yeah. Um, That's great. But, you know... Well, yeah, I would also so want to mention um, Kara and Spandana, who were also our other group members who did a lot of research, too. Got it. So you quickly uh, think about a, a different, um, like a strategy, and then you started on, if I remember, uh, used three estimate calculations. Can you talk about each one of them and um, which one was most accurate for you and a little bit of behind your approach? Sure. Um, <laughs> Do you want to sure, sure. take the first two, Kelsey, and then I can talk about Yeah, okay. yeah. So um, I ended up writing the, the code for uh, first two, and then Sam wrote the code for the third, so I can start. Um, I'm not sure we had really any way to assess accuracy, so I don't know if we can, like, really say something was, like, the most accurate. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, the first estimate was referring to it as the addition estimate but basically um it's sort of the simplest possible estimate let's just take all of the people we know are involved in intravenous drug use or opioid use and add them all together um so we get like a sort of lower bound estimate you know this is we know this is all of the people um it, it has to be at least that uh, and then we used uh, a multiplier method. So um, group found this after doing a search of the scientific literature. So basically the way a multiplier method works is if you know X percent of people do something and you know how many people are doing the thing, you can work backwards to find the total. So so like for a dumb example, like if people like licorice in some town or something and we know 100 people like licorice then the total size of the town is 10,000 so it's basically like a reverse percentage um but this this is really challenging because people don't like to admit that they're interviews obviously um and so the way people usually construct these multipliers is through a survey of the scientific literature um and a survey of other people's research and data on intravenous drug users um and we didn't have time to do that so we made some really bad assumptions we took uh some multipliers from a paper from 2019 focused on the city of cincinnati um and up to 
more data and then adjusted them again for the number of intravenous drug users to basically estimate the number of opioid users. And from that, like, uh, applied the multiplier method again and estimate the number of intravenous drug users. So those, those numbers are not definitely not accurate, particularly there is um, the one one version of it where we estimated based on the number of individuals um, getting medicated, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, that's wildly high. Um, so, so I think the value in the work we did is more in it could be applied to other better data in the future rather than our estimates are like great. But maybe in the wash, they're, they're sort of hit close to the truth. Got it. Yeah. Um, and then the third method that we applied was uh, a truncated Poisson estimator. So it's based off of using the Poisson distribution, which is a probability distribution uh, frequently used to model uh, a discrete number of occurrences of an event within a continuous space. So in this case, uh, it would be modeling the, we used the needle exchange data to model the number of instances in which an individual who we just assu- we automatically assume is an intravenous drug user since they're coming to the needle exchange, um, the number of times that they come within a fixed time interval. Um, so the continuous space is time in our instances, in our uh, study example, and uh, the number of times that an intravenous drug user comes to the needle exchange uh, is uh, the number of events that we're observing. Uh, the idea behind the truncated Poisson estimator is that you do not consider um, the individuals who have visited a large number of times within your study period, and you instead only focus on those who visited your those events that occurred only once or twice, or those individuals who only came once or twice within the study time period. Uh, And the idea behind this is that you would expect that individuals who visited zero times would have more in common with individuals who only came once or twice within the time period that you're observing. Um, So there are some pretty large assumptions that are already being made there. Um, And what you do with that estimator is you basically take those frequencies for that you've observed for those individuals who came once and those individuals who came twice. You use the entire set of observations in order to actually estimate the um, distribution itself. And then you sort of take only those that you observed once and twice and you try to estimate the overall um, number of individuals who you saw zero times within the same study period. And then after you've estimated those individuals, you basically have a complete number or a complete estimate of all individuals who possibly could have attended the needle exchange within your study time period. Um, so there's, there's definitely some math that's going on with it. And I, I gotta say that there was a solid portion of this hackathon that was 
devoted to me wrapping my head around some of the math that was going on, especially so that I could get confidence <laughs> intervals. Um, yeah, I could tell that. Which, for, for me, it would be, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I should mention that it's actually a, an estimator that we applied because we found an example in the literature of, um, of some researchers who were, I think it was in Scotland, who were trying to take needle exchange data and apply this type of estimator in order to get a final estimate of um, the total number of intravenous drug users. So it had a, it obviously had a really direct correlation to the, or a direct application to the problem that we were trying to solve. Um, it also comes from a more general type of experiment that is called capture-recapture experiments that I believe are, the reason it gets its name in that way is because a lot of ecologists use them. They use these types of estimators to estimate the total population of like a certain species that they are just kind of encountering randomly when they're in the field. Um, and so that, yeah, I, that's one of the main like instances where it's been applied. And that's why those types of experiments are called that way. But uh, it had direct applicability to what we were doing as well. Um, so we kind of took that and ran with it. Um, there, yeah, I think that we're going to get into assumption. And yeah. That right? Yeah. So, uh, I first want to say I feel like everybody is learning a lot about uh, probability distributions these days uh, with the pandemic and, uh, you know, logarithmic and exponential. <laughs> exponential um, growth. Yeah. So we're all uh, not, I mean, I've, I feel like maybe some data scientists or um, definitely biostatisticians are a little bit ahead of the curve on that. But I think we're all learning a lot more about that right now. Um, so you talked a lot about assumptions that you guys, uh, your team was making. Um, can you talk about what those assumptions were? Which ones were the most challenging to kind of work through? And uh, what assumptions are you still kind of wrap, trying to wrap your head around? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I don't know, Sam, do you want to like take this one? I think I have a better sure. sort of handle what you're assuming with like the Poisson estimator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the case of the, the truncated Poisson estimator, um, one of the one of the big ones, especially with any indirect method of estimation, is that within the time period that you have your observed data, um, you don't you expect that there was not so much fluctuation within the population that you were studying, such or for within the time period of your observation. So, in our case, we're assuming if I take my if I take the uh, data set that we had from Prevention Point for all of their 2019 needle exchange visits. Um, and I apply an estimator that spans from basically the entire year. I am assuming that the fluctuation of the population of intravenous drug users within the city of Philadelphia for all of 2019, it did not fluctuate in a manner that we had to, con that we had to, um, adjust for. Uh, so you, you are more or less assuming that your population remains constant in some way, shape, or form, which uh, is pretty problematic for the, for intravenous drug users. I mean, some have to, some go to treatment, right? Um, some end up moving because the population can be transient in certain ways. Obviously, we, we know a lot about uh, uh, fatal overdoses that can cause 
pretty dramatic changes. Also, if um, there is an increase in the population, it means that you're you're probably failing to account for periods of time uh, where there is a significant increase in the population or you're not adjusting properly when you're estimating that. So uh, one of the things that, or one of the ways to address this is to basically try to chunk up your data into like smaller time intervals or varying time intervals in order to try and get a better sense of what is the best time interval within which to generate those estimates. Um, just based on what we saw, uh, we're thinking that it would best be applied on a monthly basis. Um, and then observing how those estimates kind of fluctuate based on the month's needle exchange data or the, the month that you are using in order to estimate it. Um, yeah, I, just to kind of throw some numbers out there, just to give people who are listening an idea of how much it fluctuates. Um, if we applied this estimator for data that was from all of 2019, the estimate came to be about 28,000 individuals. Um, whereas on a monthly basis, it fluctuated somewhere around 4,000 to 9,000 individuals. Um, and the degree of fluctuation between each of, those each of those monthly estimates was not nearly as significant as like how, how large the estimate using the data set for all of 2019. It, that tells us that there's probably a pretty significant fluctuation in the population size on an annual basis and that we need to use more um, at shorter time intervals uh, when we're considering um, our observed data set in the estimate. Um, I think the, the, other, the other one that I wanted to throw out is we're also assuming that everyone coming to the needle exchange is an intravenous drug user, which just in our conversations, uh, one of the things that happened at the start of the hackathon, we got we got to talk with um, I'm blanking on her name. I'm very sorry to whoever that individual is, but uh, we we got to talk with um, a woman who is responsible for all of the data entry uh, at Prevention Point for their needle exchange program. Um, and she just anecdotally told us that there are individuals who come in who are not picking up needles for themselves at all. Uh, and some of them are, they they pick up needles so that they can uh, provide them to other people who are out on the street. So it would be, a we're more or less when we are considering those visitors who are coming or in our data set, we, we aren't differentiating those types of visits from an individual who is an intravenous drug user who's using the needle exchange for those purposes. Um, and there's always going to be little, uh, little things like that. But I think that that one, that assumption, would be safe. We heard that um, at the beginning of the um, hackathon that having access to the people from Prevention Point and some of the people who were on the, on the ground actually working at it just provided so much clarity, uh, but also opened up some of the challenges. Kelsey, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges other than uh, just determining the assumptions that you, that you came upon? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, first of all, it was um, it was sort of challenging to find methods and to decide what to do with the data. Um, you know, that first day we did almost nothing with the data, um, you know, so 
because I'm a scientist, my first thought was, I don't know what to do. I'll go check the literature. So it was, but it was, none of us were domain experts. So it was challenging to find, you know, papers and methods and research on the subject. Um, it was challenging to find data that we could work with. Um, a lot of the data out there is on opioid users and not intravenous drug users more specifically. Uh, so it was really, really hard to find numbers on intravenous drug users to uh, try and adjust our estimates. Um, and, and the amount that the data had to be aggregated for privacy reasons, um, was also really challenging. Um, I mean, I ended up aggregating everything on a yearly level, uh, which isn't ideal uh, for a lot of these estimates and for and for trying to provide a future projection. It would be better if I had you know more data points to work with. Uh, so it was yeah, it was really really challenging finding stuff about intravenous drug use specifically. Yeah, I I think also just to springboard off of that um when we were going to do our multiplier estimates it was <laughs> it was really challenging uh knowing if we were picking good multipliers or bad multipliers to use um and we yeah we to, yeah you can speak more of that too kelsey yeah that, that's a really good point like i think we actually i because there were three from that Cincinnati paper that we ended up trying. And I think one was bad and two were good um, because those multipliers are also like very time and location dependent. Um, because for example, if we had tried, we did find some, multi I did find some multipliers from like the 1990s, but they wouldn't be applicable to today um, because the soup um, was different. Um, yeah. You know, like multipliers. Yeah. Like a um, um, a good example was the fatal overdoses one too. Wasn't that an instance? The fatal overdose one good. There is one built up. So um, for for people who may not know, people who have opioid use disorder can um, medication assisted treatment. There's um, several medications that can help you deal with the side effects and deal with the withdrawal from um, opioid use and. Um, the Cincinnati paper had an estimate based on you know, people receiving treatment in Cincinnati. And when we tried to apply it to our Philadelphia data, I think the estimate was something around like 40,000 individuals, which was insanely high. It was well over all of our other estimates uh, seemed really out of line. And I think it's actually for a positive reason. Philadelphia is seems better about um uh, giving getting people access to medication assistant treatment um like for example like if you're in Philadelphia jails you can get it um so so in that case that was not a good estimate but using um overdose data provided a much better estimate so it's like 50 50 so I want to um I want to transition a little bit and talk about civic hacking so last week we talked to Michael uh, Becker and Marika uh, Jackson, who uh, is one of the co-directors of Code uh, for Philly, and we talked about um, a project that Penn Medicine is working on. And you know, uh, over the past month or so during the COVID crisis, a lot of people have been kind of critical of um, kind of uh, citizen data scientists like building uh, visualizations without much uh, context. 
And so what I want to ask you as two individuals who dove into a problem, a big problem, uh, as civic uh, hackers, what is the benefit of, of civic hacking? What's the benefit of having um, people who aren't necessarily domain experts uh, work on these kinds of projects with, with domain experts or with advocates in the area or in the, in the field? Yeah. Well, I think uh, what was really special about... <laughs> sorry. No, go ahead. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what was really special about this hackathon is it wasn't a bunch of data scientists jumping in and being like, we'll solve your problems for you. It was, you know, the, the domain experts set the questions. They're like, we want to know this, but we don't know how to figure it out, um, which I think is really a great model for, um, for organizations that don't necessarily have the time or resources to, you know, hire this kind of um, data support to be able to take advantage of community members that are able to help and are interested. Yeah, I, I think that the, the hackathon itself was set up in a format such that there were a couple instances along the way where teams basically had to check in with the organizers and say this is where we're heading and this is why it will be useful to the partners in question um, or for this whoever whichever of the specific partners were um, were the external stakeholders for the individual projects and I think that format really helped shape a lot of those questions and the direction that a lot of teams took as well um, as opposed to it just being a data set that you're provided and they're just saying uh, go find something out about it. Uh, that A good example is uh, I had initially tried to put a little bit of time and energy into how we could spatially represent some of uh, our estimates. It quickly became apparent that that was not going to be presentable in a manner that was useful for them, especially based off of the data that we had access to. Um, and we definitely needed to abandon that and kind of revert or kind of dive more into some of the other estimate methods that the literature was telling us were, uh, that the literature was providing, I guess, us with as a direction for our project. Um, yeah, I think that there's always, you know, a little bit of a, of, um, of, I think there's a need to center the stakeholders' interests in this case, especially when you're working with a nonprofit organization that doesn't get these resources a lot and they want to make the most of it. Um, and I think that the hackathon just did a great job of, of kind of like centering that number one priority um, and repeatedly making you reference it when you were doing little checks check-ins um, with the organizers for where you were headed. Um, That's great. So, um, Kelsey and Sam, this has been an incredible podcast. I'd, I'd love to end on um, getting your perception of, like, where where do you think this is going to go? Are, are you going to apply this anywhere else? Are you going to continue on with this? Is it is it something you're looking to apply toward the pandemic? Was it just a great experience? Um, m maybe we can start with you, Kelsey. Just get your perception of where, where it goes from here. Yeah, so... Um... I don't really think that we would be able to take this much further without access um, to better data, you know, more individual level data over, you know, shorter times, 
over you know a longer amount of time but chunked into shorter increments so i don't think uh we'll be working on this uh unless something changes you know i hopefully that these methods were um interesting to the city they may want to uh apply them i it seems based on looking at the Department of Public aggregated Department of Public Health data, they probably have some of the necessary data to uh, apply this. So, um, you know, for me, it was mostly a fun experience. Uh, these methods are not really applicable to the pandemic. So, you know, I don't know, but who who knows? Maybe I'll need a Poisson estimator in the future. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Sam, I, yeah, I don't. I, I'm not really sure what what more can be done, save for uh, very for, for save for maybe something that would be an incredibly large undertaking. Um, uh, from what I read in doing research about the Poisson estimator, there it was typically recommended that your data sources for capture recap for like a fully realized capture recapture experiment be from three different potential sources. So. A good example is like maybe in addition to uh, the needle exchange data, you also record individual level visits uh, at or individual like contact with intravenous drug users um, that you have data at the individual level, um, maybe for contact points of like medically assisted treatment and uh, like hospital visits for non-fatal overdoses, just as an example. Um, the, the challenge there is you need, to, you need some mechanism by which you could actually track a distinct individual across those three data sets and be able to be able to, um, know that that individual appeared on each of the three data sets, however many times. And then that's kind of your fully, uh, that, that is your actual observed count for that particular individual. Um, being able to track that across multiple data sets, all of which are going to have HIPAA compliance concerns involved with them, just seems not only like a very difficult task from a technical perspective, but also like a very difficult task just from a uh, public administrator perspective um so i don't know if that's ever i don't know if that would ever even happen <laughs> to be honest uh right. i i think that there is that i think that that is a very interesting potential um because like what kelsey said they they might be tracking that information uh the, they meaning like the city or whoever the agencies are that are coming into contact with uh these individuals when uh yeah coming in anytime that they're coming into contact with those individuals uh but i i kind of sincerely doubt that that would be something that would be undertaken just given the given the legal considerations given the uh really technical difficulty of tracking a distinct individual across multiple data sets um when the data is probably already pretty messy uh, just even like misspellings in a name <laughs> and silly yeah. things like that. Um, I think it'd be pretty difficult. The only other thing that I kind of that I could see just being a small branch off of this project is making some sense of uh, another 
data point that um, prevention point had in the data set that they provided us. So in addition to us being able to use like a, an anonymized unique identifier for an individual, they also provided us with a, um, an interesting data point where they, they, every single time an individual visits a needle exchange or prevention point, they ask the, that individual, uh, how many people are you picking up needles for? Um, and there's no, we've been informed that there was no uh, sort of, there was no incentive for them to lie about that figure. Um, and so it would be interesting to try and make sense of how to use that information um, in order to further inform some estimates. I, I really don't, I really had no idea how to make sense of of that data point when applying the Poisson estimator. Um, maybe there are other estimators that could be used within this. Uh, I really, I really couldn't tell you though. I, it was, that one was a challenge and still kind of a question in my head. Um, yeah, but other than that, I think it's, this is almost like a proof of concept. Yeah, that so number was really interesting, but we just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome, well, thank you both for taking the time to, to speak with us today, but, and also thank you both for working on this project, you know, um, like before the pandemic started, I think a lot of people felt like the opioid uh, epidemic was something that was really affecting uh, communities around the country. And so just trying to get a handle of how many there are in a, in a city um, is really challenging. So thank you both for, again, coming on the podcast and talking to us, but also just doing this work. So you guys are awesome. Thanks. And uh, oh, well, uh, thank you. And thank you for having us. Absolutely. We will post um, your GitHub repository for people to uh, to check out, as well as uh, links to uh, any and all the resources that we talked about. Um, and yeah, uh, stay safe. And thank you so much. Thank you.